Good morning slash evening. Welcome to the Cowboys and Rice podcast, a perfectly passable chat after the podcast. I'm your host, Winslow Robertson, and due to some unforeseen circumstances, our usual co-host, Lena Benabdella, will not be joining for this recording, unfortunately, but she will be back, I promise. Today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, African Development Jobs. African Development Jobs, a site run by Nino Duro, seeks to connect development workers with professional development resources and work opportunities in Africa. On a quest to help diversify development, it highlights the voices and issues of Africans and the diaspora in the field. It is also the best site for finding employment in the development field in Africa that I know of. South Africa is hosting the 6th edition of the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation this December. The meeting has been elevated to a summit level, inviting over 50 presidents and heads of governments. To recall, the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation, or FOCAC, was initiated in the year 2000 and was held in Beijing in order to sketch out a three-year cooperation plan between China and the countries of Africa. Since then, the triennial meetings have alternated between China and an African country, and this time will mark the first instance that FOCAC is held at a summit level in an African country. To discuss FOCAC today, we are pleased to host Dr. Bob Wakesa on the show. Dr. Wakesa received his PhD in International Communications at Communication University of China and is currently a research associate at the University of Witzfadersvand in South Africa. Dr. Wakesa, thank you for coming on the pod. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Winslow. It's it's great to hear you. So sorry about all the, the difficulties you've been facing. And I'm wondering, would you mind sharing with our listeners where you are and how soon before you get to South Africa? No, right. I'm uh, speaking from uh, Nairobi, which is uh, essentially home. Uh, Nairobi is in, in, in Kenya. And uh, I'm, I await uh, the processing of my documents, uh, travel documents. I expect to be in South Africa just in time for the FOCA conference, probably early December. Yeah, so right here we are in Nairobi, you know, uh, with El Nino, or El Nino as it's uh, pronounced, uh, you know, on, on our steps here, right? Oh my gosh, I'm sorry to hear that. As an American, I would like to apologize for El Nino. <laughs> sure. I'm told the Pacific Sea is warming up and... Uh, the effect is El Nino on this side, yeah. But that's fine. We what is good as well. Ah, oh, I sorry to hear that. And I I definitely hope you get to South Africa as FOCAC starts. Um, right. Doctor Wakesa, I'm not sure if if you're able to answer this, but what can you tell us about the atmosphere in South Africa around FOCAC? This will be the first time for the country to host the event, and. What are some of the benefits and risks of inviting over as many heads of governments and states as South Africa is doing? Right. To start with, I think um, uh, South Africans, generally speaking, but um, uh, the South African middle class and the elites are all gearing up for the summit. I think as we go closer and closer to the dates now, under one month, there will be much more you know, excitement expectations. And that is coming through, you know, when you listen to South African um, radio stations, when you watch their TV stations, and uh, reading through their newspapers. And, uh, you know, it, it, it looks like uh, perceptions, feelings, sentiments are kind of uh, split between uh, those very welcoming of uh, the, the, the Forum on China for Corporations Heads of State Summit and those that are of a pessimistic uh, you know, opinion, uh, you know, kind of critical. 
and, and, and so right, so I think the, the, we will continue seeing the mood um, uh, change, the expectations rise, uh, positions harden perhaps as we go towards that thing. And I think that what we can say of South Africa is uh, essentially to a lesser extent perhaps for the rest of the continent. Um, in terms of the risks involved, uh, if we may jump on to that um, part of your question. Uh, first of all, one I think has to explain that um, the, this conclave uh, this year, you know, the 2015, has been elevated to the level of a summit. Um, rather than a, a ministerial meeting or ministerial conference, as they are usually called. And, and therefore, in fact, on just that score, you find there's quite a bit of confusion even within uh, old China hands on whether we should call this the second China-Africa summit uh, or we should call it the sixth uh, conference. I, I think perhaps using both the sixth Ministerial Conference and Second Heads of State and Government Summit uh, perhaps will capture the, the two sides of looking at uh, the event that's coming up in early December. Which one do you call it? Do you call it the sixth or do you call it the second? I, I prefer calling it the sixth because um, essentially there will be a ministerial uh, meeting, you know, ministers in charge of foreign affairs and uh, finance, particularly. Mm. Uh, and, so and ministers the, the, are still coming. Yeah, because the the key uh, matter, the key agenda, is for the foreign ministers and uh, ministers for finance to sit and discuss, deliberate, and pass, uh, you know, make declarations. Uh, and it appears that um, the heads of state come on just for you know what one can call soft power, to to, to kind of just lend their, 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 their gravitas of their offices. So I'd rather go for sixth uh, ministerial conference. Uh, but, but because the heads of state's presence is important, well, you might want to capture both and say you know second summit. That's a fascinating point you just made. And I didn't quite realize that there was this much difficulty in nomenclature. Uh, thank you for pointing that out. Talk a little more about the, the risks of uh, the, the sixth ministerial meeting or the second uh, head of state meeting. No, I think the risks, uh, one can go on and on, but perhaps the key ones are number one, that... Um, you know, the, the fact is that uh, the, this uh, whole event was elevated to uh, summit status only the other day, actually in uh, early September, uh, when uh, China held uh, its um, World War II commemoration. And, uh, you know, President Zuma and uh, Minister Maite Nguana, uh, foreign affairs, South African Foreign Affairs Minister in uh, China, so it looks like it is a belated announcement. Now, what it means is uh, one can pose the question, what if some of the invited African presidents fail to turn up? Uh, I mean, uh, uh, it's, it's going to, because, uh, because it's been elevated to a summit, and therefore heads of state and government must uh, attend for it to be truly a summit. Uh, one wonders if South Africa has put in um, sufficient 
political uh, calculations and uh, you know kind of uh, soft power if you wish to invite all the 54 African presidents and who will turn up and who will not turn up. Um, now I make this point with the hindsight of the fact that uh, South Africa is big brother on the continent. It's the biggest economy, the biggest political player on the continent. Although uh, our friends from Nigeria might not agree, uh, <laughs> uh, but, but uh, uh, South Africa, while in that uh, enviable position on the continent, still has quite a bit of challenges. In that, um, for instance, South Africa and Rwanda have not had the best of relations uh, in the recent past. So if, for example, President Paul Kagame fails to turn up, uh, it will be a risk, political risk, if you wish. Um, and, and, and one can go on and talk about the fact that uh, not too long ago there were xenophobic attacks in South Africa and many African leaders uh, and, and so forth, you know, kind of had uh, raised umbrage. Uh, were very critical of South Africa, and they, you know, some of them might say, "No, look, let me send my vice president." That would be a slap in the South African face, in the Zuma's, uh, you know, President uh, Jacob Zuma's uh, face, and therefore it reduce the stature of uh, the summit. Um, and, and of course, while, while putting down this point, one must consider the fact that while uh, the FOCAT is a joint mechanism, uh, it is at the same time the country that hosts the event that uh, is really in the driver's seat. So one wants to imagine if it was Beijing calling on African presidents, they would perhaps go running, knowing that uh, this is a country that holds a big checkbook. But uh, if it's South Africa, some of them will say, we don't see any benefit from South Africa. In any case, South Africans are closing their doors on us and so forth. So I think that's something that uh, perhaps the South African uh, authorities will want to manage. I'm sure they are managing that. I'm sure the analysts are looks at uh, all those uh, potential difficulties around that. Um, the number two, the other risk is also political but internal to South Africa. Uh, one has to look at the fact that uh, South Africa is not China, uh, and China is not South Africa. South Africa is a multi-party democracy where you know, people welcome difference of opinion. You know, the, the idea that we agree to disagree. And uh, you have political organizations within South Africa, such as the Economic Freedom Fighters, EFF, and uh, the main opposition party, you know, the Democratic Alliance, who might look at the hosting of this event as another opportunity to have a go at the African National Congress, the ANC. And, and therefore, they, they, and they will raise up some noise, or, you know, they will be critical uh, of, of all this. Um, and that constitutes it means that you will have bad press perhaps towards, directed towards the ANC generally and perhaps China-Africa relations generally as well. And um, uh, you can include into all these civil society organizations. Again, uh, South Africa has some, one of the most extensive uh, civil society you know, stature, uh, and, and many of those are not uh, the kind of uh, civil societies we see in China or in NGOs non-government organizations that we see in China, which in China exist to support the government. But in the South African context, civil society exists to put the government in check. They are a mechanism for you know, accountability and transparency. And they might raise issues with uh, China-Africa deals generally and South Africa-China deals and projects and so forth specifically. The third risk, uh, just moving very fast, is the fact that 
Um, there might be, you know, South Africa also has had its issues with uh, robberies and muggings and so forth. Now, look, uh, this event being elevated to a summit level means that there will be hundreds of delegates coming over. Uh, in the past, uh, you know, events of this magnitude in uh, South Africa have witnessed incidents where some delegates actually face some of the security challenges. So one wonders if uh, the security mechanism put in place is watertight enough, or you know, in fact, airtight enough, such that there are no you know, poor South Africans who have gone into crime to try and survive, who will perhaps be targeting some of the tele- delegates and therefore end up carving out or creating a, a poor image of South Africa generally. Um, and, and of course, there will be many other risks, um, but now perhaps moving on to, um, then of course, perhaps one can just end with the, the risk of um, the fact that uh, the benefits that accrue in the China-Africa relations uh, seem to be more in favor of China than uh, Africa, and, 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 and South Africa for that matter. Uh, and, 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 you know, this might be a perception that uh, can be either enhanced or reduced, whichever way the pre-event uh, organization is going. Uh, I guess those are some of the risks that perhaps uh, I, could, I could share with you as of now. Yeah, go ahead. Right, uh, yeah, and um, so, of course, then as, like, as I was also mentioning, the, just going back to an earlier point, uh, you recall that um, FOCAC has been failed five times already. This will be the sixth one. Obviously, um, the way FOCAC is held in Beijing is without much of uh, logistical challenges. You know, it's done in a very smooth way. Uh, I know that uh, at this point in time, uh, the South African authorities must be putting their preparations, arrangements, and organization in place. Out of curiosity, were you at the last FOCAC in Beijing? Yes, I was. In 2012? Yes, I was. So you can you can speak from experience about what a smooth FOCAC looks like? No, I mean the FOCAC in Beijing, of course. You know, you can, from the the fact that, you know, at the Great Hall of the People, you know, there's the very tight security. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the the Chinese uh, army or whatever it is, I think they 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 do parades for every individual African uh, heads of state arriving. Although the last one was not a summit, uh, and and so one would expect. Uh, I mean, people will be looking to compare. How does South Africa pull off this focus compared to how it has been done in uh, in, in Beijing uh, on on a, on a very broad scale? And uh, people might perhaps be apprehensive that uh, South Africa might not uh, measure up. Uh, and, but it will be interesting. It will be a huge benefit to South Africa if they do well and pull off an uh, event as well as China could. But of course, at this point in time, one wants to be a bit jittery that perhaps, you know, it, it might not reach the same levels. Um, because you see, when you're looking at uh, South Africa's hosting of FOCAC, we are not comparing South Africa South Africa's hosting of the event to the events that were hosted in Egypt in 2009, you know, Sham al Sheikh, mm. and the event that was held in 2003 in Addis Ababa. Because this, Ethiopia, Egypt and Ethiopia are not, necessarily, are not at the level of South Africa. We have 
perceptions about the rankings and stature of countries. Well, South Africa is technically a member of the BRICS, um, and that's a very interesting conversation in its own right. But essentially, yeah, South Africa's competition is another BRIC member, which is China. It's, yeah. it's safe to say FOCAC summits are more about soft power than anything else, given that most negotiations are conducted before the actual summit, and that the the foreign ministers and finance ministers actually make the deals. The, the, the presidents just lend their support to them. What does South Africa really gain from hosting FOCAC, and why has it not hosted one in the previous 15 years? I think the, uh, I mean, the benefits to South Africa are immense. In fact, we are already, in, in the past couple of minutes, we've been discussing the risks and therefore the past disadvantages uh, of uh, things perhaps going wrong or whatever. But uh, you consider it on the other side of the coin. If everything went well, South Africa's ranking, even in terms of uh, perception indices and so forth, will shoot up magnificently. Um, in, in terms of even just the branding of uh, South Africa itself as a as a, as a nation worth of hosting such huge events. Uh, but um, going back to why it has taken uh, 15 years for, for it to uh, host FOCAC, and yet it's uh, uh, considered quote-unquote number one country on the continent, on the African continent. Uh, one has to consider the fact that uh, it will appear that it's only in recent times that uh, China-South Africa or South Africa-China relations have uh, kind of become cordial and moved on to be even warm and now in fact tight, uh, tight re relations economically, politically and even culturally. I think considering all the deals that are being done on the, uh, on the, on, on the commercial and the economic front, considering the relations between the ANC and the uh, you know, Chinese Communist Party, considering um, the coming into play of uh, Confucius Institute in South Africa, uh, you know, they're they hosting, they, they, you know, both in China and South Africa, or year of China in South Africa and year of South Africa and China in recent times. But these, these are very recent developments compared to how other African countries related with uh, China for the long, for the longest period of time, in fact. Uh, one has to go back to the fact that um, if we just go to the more, more recent of history, without going back into the 60s, uh, 70s and 80s, when um, essentially ANC was more allied to the Communist Party in Russia rather than the Communist Party in China. In fact, the Communist Party in China backed up the Pan-African Congress, which is uh, which was and is still a, a party that was opposed to the ANC. So, I mean, the relations haven't really been uh, that good, neither have they been overly bad. Um, but uh, when Mandela took over leadership, he actually attempted a reconciliation between Taiwan and mainland China. And uh, the, the mainland China leaders were very upset about this because, you see, the issue, the question of, China, of Taiwan for Chinese leaders is non-negotiable. There's a red line there if you, you don't cross it. And yet Mandela, in his uh, conciliatory approach, was saying, look, South Africa can't recognize both Taiwan and mainland China. And then therefore, this was a no-go zone, and the relations therefore didn't quite kick off uh, immediately. In fact, the, the, the you know, official uh, bilateral relations only came into play in 1998 or 1999, I think, thereabouts. 
when when, when actually South Africa had uh, gotten uh, its independence, quote unquote, from uh, the apartheid era in two years earlier. Uh, and then, of course, uh, Tambo Mbeki became the second uh, leader, second president of uh, South Africa, and uh, the leader of the ANC, and, and, and also had some very critical stance vis a vis or towards China. It will appear that it is only after Zuma took over, President Jacob Zuma, that the relations have improved magnificently, and uh, subsequently, uh, the tightening of relations have perhaps led to South Africa saying, look, we cannot afford not to host FOCAC, we cannot play second fiddle to countries such as Ethiopia and, and Egypt, we, we need to, to do it and do it now. Uh, one will also recall that perhaps impetus might arise out of the fact that it is China that invited South Africa into the BRICS. In fact, there have been murmurs in the international arena that some BRICS members, uh, member countries, might have been opposed to South Africa cho- joining the BRICS because, in fact, the South African economy is not anywhere near the rest of the four. But uh, it's China that lobbied hard for inclusion of, uh, of South Africa. In fact, people have pointed out that perhaps India, specifically, was not keen for South Africa to join. But, uh, you know, China persuaded. So, so therefore, the tightening uh, relations, engagements, economically, culturally, and so forth, make it, you know, kind of imperative that uh, South Africa must uh, host uh, the, the, the sixth forecast. And we're actually not talking really 15 years because uh, South Africa offered uh, to host in 2012. Um, and, and therefore, it's been uh, some time of preparation already. It's not something like that is just happening in 2015. It's been three years of past working at it. Now, you mentioned earlier that um, uh, these uh, you know, forums, so these uh, conferences, uh, usually there, there are a lot of negotiations beforehand, and therefore uh, the events themselves are much more soft power uh, events. You know, it's kind of foregone conclusion. There isn't really anything substantive happening. I think it's very important that the negotiations go that way. This is the unique um, China-Africa engagement uh, as compared to other, uh, you know, events. But one must consider the importance of the conferences as going beyond soft power in the sense that, uh, in fact, soft power itself could be a um, platform for doing further negotiations. Number two, when these conferences are held, you know, like uh, this one's going to be a summit, uh, beyond the deals and agreements that will have been made beforehand, there's also side events, and there are quite usually a lot of side events. You know, there will be a forum on economic, um, you know, a side forum on economics, side forum on culture, and so forth and so on. And during uh, all these uh, side events, uh, Chinese and African leaders meet and sign other contracts that are not captured in the declarations and action plans of a FOCAC proper. Uh, at, at the last event, which I was observing right there in Beijing, I saw quite a lot of uh, Chinese telecom companies uh, and other ICT companies, Chinese energy and infrastructure companies, you know, kind of lobbying African uh, prime ministers and presidents and ministers, you know, and, and some of them coming to the point of signing on the dotted lines on, uh, on, on some of the projects and, and some of the agreements. So I will, uh, yes, agree that it's a soft power event more than it is an, an, uh, an, an, uh, you know, an event where you negotiate.
deals, but don't you forget that there are lots of side events that go on at the, at the meeting. It's very valuable to have people with that sort of decision-making power at one location. Right, yeah. And you mentioned these side events. What are some of the media-related events that are organized around the summits, considering your specialty? Are you involved in any of them, and can you share your impressions about them? Well, I mean, there's been um, lots of um, media-related events. The one that I'm directly associated with is the VIPS China Africa Reporting Project. And um, the activities there include the fact that we've done a report that we're just releasing uh, shortly, I mean, uh, in partnership with a civil society organization called FAHAMU, which is a network for social justice. And we looked at civil society and media perspectives on uh, FOCAC. That report has been under research led by myself for some time now and we'll be releasing it shortly. I mean, to explain uh, to, to civil society perspectives because sometimes civil society is left out of all these discussions uh, and, and, and negotiations and activities as, uh, you know, civil servants and high-level officials uh, hog all the limelight and all the space. <laughs> yeah, and, and, uh, I, I would imagine China to prefer civil society not to be particularly involved. Right, right. And, and you see, from, you know, in uh, some respects, civil society in uh, certain parts of Africa, if not all, and in China, as uh, I, I consider, you know, the organizations that do philanthropy work, you know, charity. But, uh, you know, the, the civil society can also play a role beyond that. You know, they can uh, focus. Without, um, you know, malice, without having ulterior motives, they can focus on what is likely to go wrong with the relationship and how can that be improved. The problem with um, civil servants, politicians, and uh, official, officials generally is that they, they do not want scrutiny. They think uh, that, uh, you know, that is uh, driven by malice, but sometimes really it's good to be open. I mean, it's, if they uh, embraced that perspective, it will help. Now, the other um, initiative that we're involved in is actually going to happen uh, just two, three days. a pity that I'll not be attending the China-Africa, the annual uh, round table, which is going to happen at uh, Ritz, on Ritz campus on Thursday, Thursday this week. Uh, and and, and, and this, uh, this year's uh, annual round table um, is focused on FOCAC. So uh, there are experts that will be in the meeting at the venue to discuss the political, economic, and cultural implications of FOCAC. Uh, as a driver, is it just an empty kind of uh, mechanism? You know, is it just a summit? Is it summit diplomacy and that's all? Or does it have value? Uh, and uh, these experts will be joined by journalists from selected African countries who will also, you know, give their perspectives on uh, reporting, and also learn from the experts on what to look for with particular focus on the, the sixth uh, conference. Uh, so that's happening in two days. Now, then uh, on, uh, in, uh, around when the event itself uh, commences about third to fourth, I mean second, third, fourth of December, we're going to have live streaming of uh, the event as it, it goes on, as covered by journalists there, and we'll be looking at um, you know certain uh, nuances and perspectives and details to relate to researchers, to journalists, to general populace, and and, and so forth. 
Uh, in addition to the Rich China Africa reporting initiatives that I've mentioned, uh, there's, there's going to be a few other media houses, I think, are, are gearing up for extensive coverage. I've seen that uh, NASPAS, which is a huge South African uh, in a conglomerate, has put in place some uh, very interesting, uh, you know, proposals on how, uh, I mean, uh, kind of strategies on how to best cover it. Uh, the Mail and Guardian of South Africa has recently focused quite a bit on the China-Africa story, and I'm certain they're going to have acres and acres of space allocated to that. Um, uh, so the, the, the Chinese embassy in South Africa itself also seems to be you know, moving in that direction as well. This, you can see lots of uh, activity in terms of how journalists are going to be accredited and, and so forth. Uh, the South African government has actually, through the Ministry of um, International Affairs and Trade, I think it's called, uh, has also you know, set up a dedicated uh, website where one can you know, view a lot of uh, statements coming out of the South African government. In the recent past, I've seen uh, Brand South Africa also kind of arranging to organize a tour for journalists uh, just before the conference and also providing lots of information, tips and so forth for, for African and for uh, Chinese uh, journalists. So in uh, all, all in all, it appears, in fact, the other thing that we are doing also is that we, at, at RITS uh, University, we are inviting Professor Deborah Grottigan to come on to campus and speak to a couple of uh, journalists you know, that's basically editors and some reporters in the rich fraternity on, uh, you know, myths and realities in the, in the China-Africa relations with the, in the context of focus. just wrote a book on, on myths and realities of Chinese agricultural interests in Africa, so that's great that you're getting her during her very busy book tour, so... Congrats. Right, right for that. I mean, we are extremely, extremely, I mean, my words might maybe don't express this uh, as well as I should, but we are lucky to have uh, Professor Broadcom coming over to to speak to, to uh, South African and African journalists ahead of the summit. Yeah, so I think these are some of the, you know, media activities. In fact, as a rounding off statement on that, um, it will appear that uh, this FOCAC 6 will perhaps be covered a little more extensively, a little more skillfully, uh, a little more focused than perhaps all the other FOCAC events. I can't recall any previous FOCAC that this had this level of media interest or media scrutiny, if, if you prefer the term. And I'm really, I'm extremely happy that the media is going to cover it with, with such detail. Uh, and I'm also very curious to see what sort of reactions that gets from the various governments in attendance. I'm not sure how much of this they want covered in the way the media is actually going to cover them. Yeah, I, I think one can expect that one, um, the... Uh, the, the, the officials, government officials, will uh, like perhaps a lot of coverage, yes, but this coverage to be positive. Um, and the media houses, on the other hand, might want a lot of coverage, yes, but this coverage must be of critical nature. I think one wants to find a middle ground. Uh, let there be criticism when criticism is due, where it is deserved, and let the government officials 
uh, take criticism uh, if they are tried, as long as the criticism is based on facts and figures and uh, it's genuine. Uh, if it's malicious, then that's another whole point. I mean, the, but uh, I, I think um, I, I think you know because I'm I'm certain lots of uh, uh, government officials and uh, other forms of uh, you know state officers listening to this podcast. I think the message out there is that nobody should fear the media as long as uh, they are not hiding anything that is the media is going out there to unravel. Uh, and on the other hand, our media colleagues also should not go out with uh, you know the idea of just looking for that. It should be uh, something that you know one looks at objectively and gives uh, you know you know kind of uh, positive reportage when it's due and vice versa. That's a, a really good point, and I'm quite delighted to think that anybody who's attending FOCAC would actually listen to this podcast. But it's really worth stressing that that yeah, um, all all actors involved should not assume the worst of each other, and and instead look for constructive avenues for engagement. And there are a lot of good things that African officials and Chinese officials are doing around FOCAC. Right. That that hopefully get get reported on as well. And to close, what can you say about the relations between China and South Africa? Xi Jinping has more on his agenda while he is in South Africa than just FOCAC, correct? What bilateral issues are expected to be central to his visit? We read a lot about how China's economic slowdown has a negative impact on South Africa's economy. What's your assessment of this on the ground? Do you see any impacts? How are local media portraying this there, and is this affecting people's perceptions of China-South Africa relations? No, I, I think, first, I mean, she's a mission to South Africa. Uh, one, I think they will be looking, I, I, I think it's not just the President Xi alone, but the Chinese uh, you know, officials, uh, including President Xi, as they come down to South Africa in December. I think they, they will be looking very keenly to see if indeed the South Africa is worth its salt, as it were, in a manner of speaking, yeah, in, in terms of uh, being able to mobilize the whole continent for this China-Africa project. Um, and uh, so I think the expectations are at that level, you know, geopolitically. Uh, you, you want to see uh, even South Africa is, um, you know, the, a geopolitical partner of uh, not on the continent or uh, the Chinese will very just deal directly with uh, African countries as they already do some extent. But since South Africa is a, you know, quote-unquote, a representative of the continent uh, in many of these geopolitical forums. I think that would be a, a keen thing to observe. But beyond that, you know, the quality of uh, economic engagements between uh, China and South Africa is, as one can imagine, one of uh, the highest on, uh, you know, in terms of comparing China, South Africa, and China, and other African countries. So definitely this will be an occasion for uh, the Chinese officials to look to cut more deals, and perhaps South Africans also be very prepared to see what deals they can uh, arrive at, they can reach in terms of uh, in, in the sectors as diverse as uh, ICTs, media, uh, natural resources, extraction, minerals, and name them, 
the agriculture sector, manufacturing, and then so forth. There's, there's a big deal on uh, nuclear power that uh, you know has been um, of huge interest because this is this is, will ordinarily be a huge project as one can imagine. Uh, I think it will be a good picking, perhaps uh, you know, a nice picking because other countries have been eyeing the same Russia, for example, um, and um, you know. There's been concern. I mean, will, I for the South Africans also, they will be looking at uh, uh, addressing some of the imbalances uh, that uh, exist between uh, China and South Africa. Of course, considering the fact that China is a huge country, sometimes you cannot have a perfect balance. But uh, you know, for a long time, the, the quality of Chinese or South Africa's engagement with South Africa was very much in the favor of South Africa. But in the recent times, it has shifted the other way around. And, and so this would be perhaps issues that uh, at a bilateral level will be perhaps discussed, even as uh, the two countries, China and South Africa, host the rest of the continent. Um, you did mention that, um, that w- if you can just remind, what was the other section of your question? What bilateral issues are expected to be central to the visit? The impact of China's economic slowdown on South Africa's economy, how that is seen on the ground? Uh, okay, so I, I think, uh, of course, there, there's been uh, quite a bit of writings on um, you know, China's uh, economic slowdown and what it means for South Africa and the rest of the continent for that matter. And uh, those, uh, you know, you can always tell when you read uh, between the lines from various uh, commentators. You can always tell where they lie in as far as their thoughts on China South Africa relations. Those who are essentially pessimistic will say it is over. You know, China's boom uh, and economic uh, miracle kind of story is over, and uh, South Africa is better off diversifying. South Africa is better off looking elsewhere. But uh, you know, you can all, you, you know you get to see you know some one or two you know a few commentators who seem to understand it, the, the, the issue a little better and can see that China is facing a challenge, but you are making a huge mistake if you write off China. Because uh, it, doesn't, it, it is not as if China, Chinese uh, prowess uh, in various sectors has completely fizzled out. It has only slowed down. So there's lots of uh, things one can do. In fact, the, the, the fact that... Um, China's uh, economy slowing down is something that arises out of deliberate Chinese strategizing to move away from low-end manufacturing and to rise, uh, you know, in terms of value chain, and and, and uh, you know to to focus a little less on you know, labor-intensive activities and so forth. Uh, and when you have such a huge shift, and this shift is being started yesterday uh, as. Far back as 2012, there's talk of, yeah, we, we need to change our economic model. In fact, earlier. So when you have such a you know, kind of a tectonic shift, you, you, are exe- you expect a bump. But, you know, the Chinese um, authorities are smart in the sense that they are able to keep working on something without uh, worrying about opposition, you know, opposition to their plans and so forth, like ease in democracies. So, you know, you never know, they might just come up with a smart uh, way of sorting out this uh, bump. It's, it's kind of like turbulence that in, in the air, and it's, it's perhaps temporary. Um, so I, I suspect that uh, those uh, South Africans who are smart enough 
uh, will look at yes, we can diversify and so forth. Uh, but those who advise that uh, South Africa should write off China entirely, I think, make a huge, uh, you know, error of judgment. That is a pretty strong, a, a pretty fair assessment. Do you have any idea how local media in South Africa are portraying China's economic slowdown at all? or how normal people or how everyday people on the ground if there is such a thing or such a category are interpreting China's economic slowdown uh, do you see this level of nuance amongst media or amongst people i think the best analysis one gets on um, from media is from uh, it's called business day um which is a niche market uh, publication that focus, focuses on matters, economics and finance. And there you see some very nuanced kind of, you know, analysis. Of course, like uh, the rest of uh, global media, uh, as the Chinese stock market has, uh, you know, faced lots of challenges over the past, uh, you know, in fact, let's just say this year, uh, because that is perhaps May or so, uh, you know, the there's been a you know, kind of uh, apprehension that uh, South Africa is so very tight with China, so that anything that happens in China, you know, like they say, when China sneezes, everybody gets a cold. Every African country, perhaps, including South Africa, uh, gets a cold. Um, now, the, so there are, there are those perspectives that uh, take due cognizance of the fact that a slowdown in China and any economic uh, hemorrhage uh, in, in, on a, a country that size and that big economically has an impact on the South African uh, scene. Uh, now, some analysis, even within a, a paper such as Business Day, you find some that say, no, look, we should uh, now look back west. You know, because we've, for far too long, we've been looking east to China. Now we must look back west to the U.S. In fact, in this context, one of the very interesting things is that in the recent time there's been kind of an altercation between South Africa and the U.S. over, uh, you know, South Africa's protectionism on certain sectors where they want uh, American companies to dump products. I think I had in the particular poultry products and services and stuff like that. Um, and, and people are advising, you know, we should be a little more open to a U.S. that is recovering economically uh, rather than to a China that seems now to be where the U.S. was, uh, you know, in 2008 and so forth, when there was uh, the subprime, uh, you know, plunge and you know the bubble and so forth. Um, but um, having said that, I think um, the local people, like you write, the man on the street, the everyday people, uh, you know, do not seem to realize much. I mean, uh, to the best of my knowledge, I, I think this will require a proper study. But, uh, you know, I, I doubt none of the people, I mean, people on the streets realize that uh, a slump in the Chinese economy has an impact on them directly. It will be more elites that, who, who, who understand, uh, the, you know, the, the impact. Yeah. Okay, and that's a, a really good point to close out with. We're going to move on to recommendations. Dr. Wakesa, do you have any recommendations for our listeners? Yeah, I think uh, for our listeners, um, the critical thing here 
is I think they should take a very, very keen interest in China Africa engagement. And there's no better time and occasion to look at uh, the engagements than now, you know, because we are, we are in the sixth uh, FOCAC era. And uh, it's a, it comes at a very interesting time when, like you rightly pointed out, China's uh, economy seems a bit shaky. Not necessarily, you know, completely obliterated, but um, it's on shaky ground. Uh, and so one wants to look at um, FOCAC as perhaps an opportunity where China can look towards Africa for assistance and uh, for help, in fact. Uh, and then African countries can use that occasion perhaps to strike uh, better deals for themselves, perhaps. Um, and I think for the listeners as well, I, I think there's now plenty of... Uh, you'll be spoiled for literature. You know, we just went to online you know, or on... Um, you know, these digital uh, you know, platforms. There's lots of literature. Now, one has to be very careful about literature that claims to be overly positive, overly, you know, optimistic about China-Africa relations. I mean, if there's too much praise for each other, then someone is lying to the other. On the other hand, one also has to be very careful about overly negative sentiment. You know, um, the kind of sentiment we see from uh, a number of media houses, unfortunately, many of them Western. Uh, one has to be very careful about what is behind that negativity. Because I find that some of these seeps and uh, kind of percolates into the populace. And before you know it, people are telling you, um, you know, there are Chinese prisoners working in infrastructure projects in Africa, which is a myth. Uh, but on the other on the other hand, you find people who are overly optimistic and say, you know, China is the salvation of Africa. I mean, because of China now, African countries have the best infrastructure in the world and so forth. This is a myth as well. So I think striking a chord between analysis of what is optimistic, what is positive, and what's negative, and taking that position will be based on seeking knowledge, and that knowledge is available in books, on the internet, and so forth. That would be my advice, yeah. And that, I think, is a really excellent recommendation that is as true now as every episode of this pod uh, in terms of finding yeah. finding reasonable, well-researched voices to listen to. As for myself, I have a, a brief recommendation yeah. from CCTV Africa, actually, and this might be the first time CCTV Africa has made the cut, but... I was alerted this weekend by Beatrice Marshall, uh, who is one of CCTV Africa's best anchors, about an episode of Talk Africa about industrializing Africa, and some really good guests on who, who, who are quite knowledgeable, including Professor Ho Wenping, who would be a dream guest for this pod. And uh, it, it's, a, it's a good video, it's a well-done video, I really enjoyed it, and I recommend you, dear listeners, to check it out. Before we sign off, Dr. Okesa, how do people find you on the internet? Do you have a website or Twitter account that you'd like to share with us? Listeners can get in touch with me on Twitter. That's Bob Wekesa. Just to repeat, on Twitter is Bob Wekesa. Similarly, on Facebook, you look for Bob Wekesa. Uh, listeners who are interested in my writings and those of my colleagues at with China Africa Reporting Project, ought to just go to the with China Africa Reporting 
rather reads China Africa Reporting Project website and they will find some of my writings as well as those of other colleagues. Thank you very much. Bye. Terrific. I myself can be found on carriesrice.blogspot.com and carriesrice.com. And my Twitter handle is at Winslow underscore R. And if you are interested in China Africa, please follow me. That is about it for today's episode. We would like to thank Dr. Wakesa for joining us this afternoon from Kenya. And please bear with us for all the technical difficulties. I had to wake up at 6 in the morning to record this, which for you might not be impressive, but for me is quite impressive. We would also like to thank African Development Jobs. This podcast can be found on SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Double Twist, and iTunes. We're also teaming up with WTND Community Radio for the Coma in order to share a podcast. We would also like to thank Mighty Mike for Pulse Recordings for composing the theme song. And thank you, dear listener, for giving us your time. Take care.